0: I like to do it our opening last week I did and I want to do it again this week a few things before we get to our lesson I've been talking about worship and worship services a little bit and what people last week we talked about when outsiders come to our service what should they see Well they should see Jesus and they should discover Jesus and we talked about how when other people who are not part of our church come to church what they should have as an experience here, so to speak. They should experience Jesus and how we can help communicate that. I want to flip it over and say, last week talked about outsiders when they come to church. What about insiders, so to speak, when they come to church? What should God's people be doing? This is not a mandate. Obviously, it's not a matter of right or wrong, just a framework to help you maybe to take coming to church on Sunday and worshiping together with God's people maybe perhaps a little more serious than you have I want to read an article it's called judging worship This is a pastor speaking he says I wish I had a dollar for every time someone walked up to me at the end of a worship service and said preacher I didn't get anything out of that service. He asked, "What? What's ha- what has gone wrong?" He said, "It was a. It'd be a good exercise to have a gigantic. You need more? Yeah, one more. Oh, okay, beautiful." He said, "It'd be a good exercise to have a gigantic whiteboard out in the foyer, and then have some erase. You know those black." Not permanent markers. And go by and say, what are you looking for when you come to a service? And it's interesting, I think, what you would find, he says. Um, Let me tell you the brunt of his lesson, then why I gave you the sheet. He says, it's impossible to be able to hit all the needs and expectations in one hour that people were looking for. And this is why Rodeshi says, add to that the heartbreaking reality that most people don't take any time to prepare for worship. They grab their stuff and the kids and head out when, they worship, when the worship service is over. And they don't think about worship till next Sunday. They may have prayed, but probably not, he says. They may have read their Bibles for service, but I doubt it. Um, He said, add to this reality people's already frantic life. And when they plop down in the pew on Sunday morning, they are waiting for a worship experience to be done for them. They want to sit and admire. They want to enjoy music and be inspired by the sermon. They have their emotions moved and then they will leave. But they won't have done anything. They won't have given anything. They won't have worshiped. They will have been entertained, but they won't have worshiped. I'm going to quote this. He says, and they're probably right, they won't have gotten anything out of the service, but where is it written in the Bible that you should get something every time you come to worship? For the life of me, I can't find anywhere in the Bible that talks about what we should get by coming to a worship experience. Listen to this. However, I can find a lot of passages about what we should bring to worship, about what we should give during worship, but nothing about what we should get. He says, worship at his best is celebrating what God has done in our lives and then anticipating what God will do in the future. He says, we're to bring our worship with us. But if you haven't encountered God in the last week, how do you worship? What do you celebrate? What do you hope for? I mean, he doesn't say it this explicitly, but he's trying to say this. If you haven't really experienced God and worshiped him much all during the week, then you won't have anything to bring to worship him with on Sunday. So he says, why people come so much expecting this great experience all on Sundays is because they haven't had any all week long. So now it's up to the church service to supply for them what should be their own relationship with God all week long. He says, if you don't have anything in your that is driving you to worship, does it really matter what song we sing? Whenever I, don't, whenever I don't get anything out of worship, more times than not, it's because I didn't bring anything to worship, he says. I didn't bring an offering to celebrate God's goodness in my life. I didn't bring a testimony that brought a song to the moment. I didn't bring anything to place before God. I didn't give him anything to work in that moment. And guess what? Nothing happened. And then he says this, I am responsible for my own worship, and so are you. If we don't get anything, maybe it's because we didn't bring anything. That's a pretty interesting thought. Maybe we don't get anything because we didn't bring anything. So, you know, the question is, what did you bring today to worship? Sunday should be the climax of Monday through Saturday, Right, So if you're reading your Bible and you're praying and you're worshiping God and obeying Him and living for Him and He's everything, you know what? Coming together with God's people should be the climax of all of that. Right? It shouldn't be that there's nothing all week and then Sunday has to do it all for you in one shot. And that's why I think that churches have become major concerts and performances and blah, blah, You know why? Because they're not getting anything with God all week long. Instead, they have to get it all in one hour or two, and, sh- and put it all in there because they haven't had experience with God. So I, what I made for you is this paper, and it's a planner, okay? And this is not as time-consuming as you might think. So I, I put on here three segments of before you come to church on Sunday, okay? So if you haven't got an idea, well, it's not all before, but this is what you would contemplate. So there's the first section is pre-worship. That is the part that you do before you come to church on Sunday. Now, and this may or may not be you, but the average person sees Sunday as a time to sleep in a little later, Um, and then if you have a, a wife and you have kids, then it's a lot because you're getting everybody out the door and you're getting them all dressed and, and, and made, you know, ready, and they have to find, oh, where's everybody's Bible, and you know, and blah, blah, blah. And if you have a distance to drive, and that's another 10 or 15 minutes on top of it, and everybody's rushing out the door, and if you haven't prepared well, that means everybody's being pushed, and parents are being angry with their kids because they're dawdling and fooling around, and then you're going to be late, and you get in the car, and you're mad at each other, and then you walk in church. <laughs> I, I don't know if you ever had that scenario when you had kids growing up or if you still do or whatever but the truth is preparation preparation for worship now i say that to say this um we come to church and church starts at 9 45 for Sunday school now i have to i come over at work somewhere between 7 45 and usually closer to eight o'clock so that's what eight o'clock is the time Right? I don't know when you have to be at work, but I know people who have to get on the train to go to New York City at like 6.30 in the morning. Right, And a lot of people, I mean, most people I know have to be at work around 8. I mean, some people 9. But most people 8, sometimes before 8 o'clock, and they do that for a long time. So I look at it this way. If you can have to do, get everything prepared every day of the week to get to, to work at 8 o'clock or before and church is an hour and a half later, then you should have plenty of time, right, to prepare. So it can't be a matter of time on Sunday because you have probably more time to be here and be prepared than probably anything else you do any other morning of the week, including your job, right? So you prepare. So anything you're going to do that matters takes preparation. If you're going to play good at sports, it's going to take preparation. If you're going to do well at your job, it's going to take preparation. If you're going to do, right? All those things... If I'm going to do well on a test, I have to prepare, I have to take time, all those things too. And I would say that God's worshiping God together has to be one of the most important things that we do. And so why wouldn't we want to prepare? So I called it, this is the personal part. Personally, this is your time to go hard after your own heart. In other words, I want to come to church ready to worship as much as I can. So when I am at home, I may take five or ten minutes to read the Bible and I would read things like Psalms or things that exalt God and adore Him and His attributes and perfections and how great He is because I want to be in awe of Him. Because too often in my prayers, and maybe yours too, I rush in there because I want him to do this for me and I'm asking Him to give me this and help somebody else do this and would you save so and so. Those are all good things. But when's the last time you had a prayer where all you did was tell God how awesome He is and how great He is? Have you ever read any of the Bible prayers Almost all of them start with how great God is and what he's like. Because the basis of what he does is founded on who he is. And if you don't get that right, then your prayer is going to be pretty self-centered and probably mostly left unanswered. But if we took the time on Sunday mornings and say, hey, you know what I do? One of the last things I do is the last 15, 20 minutes before I come to church is I just get on my knees and pray after I've read the Bible how great God is, and I want to pray, and I'm going to pray maybe for, if I was in a small group, I might pray for my small group that I'm going to meet with. Or I might say today, Lord, help me in the pews to find someone who's new to our church as a visitor. And I might want to say, God, help me to be friendly and kind today and fellowship with people. Help me to look to say something encouraging to other believers here at the church. I, I might spend a few, just a few minutes praying that way. So here's what I've done. I've got up, and I, and I would go so far, honestly, to say that in my house, I wouldn't allow my kids, by and large, to stay up till all hours of the night on Saturday. I think to take God seriously, you know, it'd be like you saying, well, I have to get up to go to work every day at 6.30, but I'm going to go to bed every morning at 2 in the morning. Well, you probably won't be very good at your job for that long if you're only getting four or five hours of sleep. So, you know, don't let your kids stay up all hours of night on Saturday to play video games or whatever they're doing. And say it doesn't matter because Saturday, you know, it does because I can't pay attention. And it's wondered why your kids fall asleep in the pew. Because they haven't fallen asleep at the right time last night, right? Could be. So anyways, a preparation might even start on Saturday night and that here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be home at a decent hour. I'm going to get to bed at a decent hour. I'm going to get up at a decent hour. For me, I get up every day around 6.15 or 6.30. So if I were you, if I had to get up the same thing on Sunday wouldn't hurt me but most of you can sleep in another hour at least longer than you normally would any other day maybe that hour you can take some time in there and pray and, and read the bible about god pray to god thank him confess your prayer sins so that you could be ready to hear from him when you come and then second part would be i call pro-worship in any words i'm making much out of it so i'm gonna this is called participation The first one was the personal level. I go hard after my own heart. Secondly, vertically, I go hard after God. And so I would love it. I watch the family here come in. uh, Always seeking God first when they come into Sunday school and church. I love that. Um, I think it's great if you come to church, and the main thing you're doing, not because you can't talk to someone before church or whatever, but the main thing you're trying to do is, you know what, I'm going to come in and find a place and get my, and, and, you know, really focus on God. i I'd have my Bible ready. You know, if I'm taking notes, I'll be ready to do that. But participation in the service. And so part of the service is I sing the songs um, and sing them out. I don't just mouth them or blah, blah, blah. I, I really sing. I get in, and in, you know what? During the service, I'll take time to pray and say, God, here's my life. Take a look at, it. let the word of God look into me today. I just don't want to look into the Bible I want the Bible to look into me. So I might spend some time confessing my sins. And then I want to leave today. Uh, I want to be more dependent on you, more reliant on you, more trusting in you. But I want to participate in the service in every possible way. Because remember, outsiders are looking at how meaningful Jesus is to you and how much he changes you by the way that you participate in the service. So it it, it matters that you do those things. And then actually post-worship, the last part, What do you do after service? And this is why I encourage people to come a little early and stay a little later because if you go hard after God during the service, then we should go hard after people after the service. And I made up a word because it has a P and I couldn't think of anything else. So I put peopleization on there. People. Go after people. People that you see, people that you know, people that you don't know. And so there's the me, he, we kind of, you can see it listed there. That's the the part we're trying to focus on. So I fellowship with saved people, and I gospelize lost people. And you know what? I've, almost every Sunday, I can tell you, almost every Sunday I meet someone who I know is not a believer, who's a visitor here or just comes here to listen. And uh, so it's interesting if you have eyes to see it about who might be sitting fairly near to you that you don't know who they are. And maybe they've come here... I, I've been embarrassed years ago. I thought that this person was a visitor and they said, I've been coming here for almost a year. And I go, well, they go, you know. So, but you make mistakes sometimes, it happens. But peopleization, that's, so I would encourage you, go hard after your heart before you come here to be ready for here. Go hard after God when you are here. And afterwards, go hard after people. Um, if you could make that kind of the framework, um, I think that you might find... You know, the worship on Sunday more meaningful for you, and actually it will be more meaningful for others because of the impact that you have in their life. So, you might want to add to, subtract that too. You might even want to put in your own scriptures and write them down, which ones you've used and what you're going to go over again. And if you do take your, you know, start doing that a little bit more faithfully or seriously, let me know how it goes and some of the things that take place. I, I'd love to hear some of those stories. But that's, I thought, would be encouragement to you today as well and challenge you the same time. Today, um, our lesson is, you don't have to turn there yet. In fact, you want to turn to Jeremiah. That's actually where we're going to go. The next paragraph on the Sermon on the Mount is on divorce and remarriage. And it's part of the adultery talk that Jesus is giving. And he's going to say that last week in the paragraph chapter 5, 27 through 30 in Matthew, he was talking about, here's one way adultery happens, lusting in your heart. Another way adultery happens is that you have the wrong view of marriage. And people get divorced for the wrong reasons, which makes them be committing adultery, and so that it can happen internally in your heart, it can happen externally. So he's going to talk about, in our sermon today, he's going to talk about when you're the one perpetrating the adultery because you're doing it in your heart. Our text, when you're the victim of adultery, what should you do? And What did the Bible give you as options to divorce and remarriage? So those are some important things. But here's the thing. I don't know how many, I mean, I know some people in our church, the ones who are are divorced. In fact, I found some, someone told me I think a week or so ago that so-and-so was divorced. I've been here all these years. I didn't even know it really. Um, And I'm sure there are people who are of divorce that I don't know about. Um, but that's the point I'm trying to make is, is that you know it's a very sensitive issue. And if you've ever, and they say eight out of 10 people, eight out of 10 people have in some way been affected by divorce. Not because they themselves have been divorced, but they may have friends who have been divorced and it really hurt their friendship and people whose parents were divorced and how it was hard growing up in that home. Because of those circumstances. And a lot of people in our culture have been have been hurt by or feel the pain, the emotion, the distress, the tension of all of those things. Children have uh, been affected by it, obviously. So it's a very sensitive issue in our culture. And at times, in some churches, people who have been divorced, um, either biblically or not biblically, um, have really been... Ostracized and at times even mistreated and seen as second-class members or citizens and so forth, and so I'm not asking. I'm not, I don't anybody. I'm not asking anyone. Certainly, wouldn't want you to pray by name today. But I did want to take some time to pray this morning um, concerning that issue. Um, the flip side of it, and, and probably the more positive side of it, is is that. Uh, although God hates divorce, that's his words from Malachi in the Old Testament, he loves people. And so even though there are some who have been divorced in our congregation and that's happened, um, God cares about them and their relationships and the things that take place as repercussions, even of the choices that we make that aren't always pleasing to him. And God is also cares about their lives. And I, I want us to know at Faith Baptist Church, although we have things that we believe the Bible teaches, that we hold all that we do in love, and we care about those people. And so I wanted to take some time just, and maybe you don't know very many either by name, but you know there are some here in our church, and to hear a message today or even a lesson that some are having in small groups today right now, it's not easy for them. And I just want us to be mindful of that today today, um, because maybe this is an easy sermon for you to hear, and you'd say, "Woo, Pastor Walker, yeah, you know," because that's never been a part of your life, but that isn't true for a lot of people. So I, I just want to remember them today, and can we do that just in our class here just for a few moments, and say, uh, let's bow our heads and close our eyes, and we're going to remember people, and by the way, I'm going to say it in my sermon, but I'm going to say it multiple times if I can. That's, that's why these two paragraphs are together, you see, most of us haven't had the problem of physical committing the physical act of adultery and therefore we haven't been divorced and that's been by God's grace and mercy. But I would say that everyone who has ever lived has had adultery in their heart. I don't know of anyone who has never thought something in their mind they shouldn't have thought. Right? I don't care who you are. Right? So, we could be self-righteous judgmentalists or we can say, listen, I've been guilty of things in my heart and listen, I want to be kind and forgiving and gracious to those who have even further degree uh, sinned against God in that way. So let's do that today as we think about it with humility in our own part and asking God to be as gracious to them as he's been gracious to us. So let's do that quietly and then I'm going to pray. Father, we would have to admit today that in our hearts we have failed you. We have fallen short of all that you want us to be. You've said that the number one commandment is to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we haven't. We haven't even done it this week. I mean, there were times when our heart was not all yours. Um, partially, maybe. We want to say that we have a whole heart to love you. But the truth is, at times, it's not all there. And we have sinned against you by giving you less. You deserve a fiery heart that won't ignore your sacrifice. But we do. And we pray that you'd forgive us. And Jesus talked about divorce, and so it was important enough to him It certainly is important enough to us to speak about it, but that doesn't mean that it's easy for everyone to hear. And Father, there are people in our congregation today, good members of our church and people who just show up, who have gone through divorces, and maybe before they were even Christians. And some have gone through divorce, and they had made some wrong choices themselves that they had to repent of. And some people are divorced today, Because their spouse was unfaithful to them. It wasn't something that they had done and they were a victim of adultery. In all different ways, in all different situations. But yet, divorce is a reality that is a difficulty and a very painful situation for many people. And we're mindful of that today and pray for them. It's not the unpardonable sin, but it is a sin in your eyes if it's not biblically done. Father, so I pray that you will help them, encourage them, help them to value the truth, help them to seek the truth. And Father, I pray that you might work in people's hearts and maybe it is the divorce in some people's lives that you use to bring them to yourself. But Father, help us to be patient people and compassionate people. You have forgiven our hard adulteries. and Father, I thank you that you forgive all, all those who will come to you in humility and brokenness. Let us weep with those who weep, and let us rejoice with those who rejoice, that we might be more like Jesus, and care about people, and be gracious to people, just like you've been to us. And we'll thank you for that rich blessing in Christ's name. Amen. To emphasize the positive, divorce and remarriage you're going to find today in the Bible is only permissible if your spouse is committing adultery. Um, I would say another view, and I would hold to it, is 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, if you have an unbelieving spouse that abandons you, um, then you're allowed to, that divorce can be remarried. So there's the exception clause that I believe in, an abandonment by an unbelieving spouse, but those would be the only reasons why the Bible would allow that to take place. Um, So divorce is more common than it should be in our culture. Um... And at Faith Baptist Church, we want to build strong families. That was actually a theme of ours a couple years ago, and we continue to want to do that. And We have men's groups and ladies' groups, and we have couples, small groups, and we have teenagers. And we try to find ways to build into lives of families um, so they can grow stronger and stronger. But can I say this? There is also obviously the part where you want to say, let's stop divorce before it happens, preventative if I could say it that way. So if you have been married for any time, um, what would you say, and even if you've been divorced, it's fine because you've probably learned a lot from that, what would you say would be advice that you would give? If you'd say, hey, someone else is just starting out in their marriage, they've only been married for a short time, and you would say, here's my one advice. Maybe there's more than that, but this is the main thing I would say to someone. If you want to keep and maintain and grow a strong marriage relationship, here's what you should do. What would you say? Bev? I prayed to God and asked Him to send me a long term person. That's the only thing I asked for. And He sent Tom to me. And we've been married 50 years in all this. Amen. 50 years. Woo! That's a long time. 50 years. That's fantastic. Congratulations. Someone else, what would you say? Here's one thing I would say that you better keep in mind for sure. Dave. Communicate. Communicate. Can you go a little further? Uh, over everything because what you're sort of thinking is you necessarily what That sounds like a man's comment right there, brother. <laughs> You've had to learn to speak Nancy, haven't you? Are you fluent yet? <laughs> yeah, okay. Jack. Never? Jack, you're in church. <laughs> all right, all right. 50 years. I, I know, your wife was great. She put up a lot, didn't she? <laughs> what else? What would you say? What would you say to someone? Here's what you need to do if you want to have a strong marriage and keep it that way. Yes? Yes? Okay, good. Talk about the tough stuff before you get married. I agree to that. My wife and I did that. I told her, you said, there'd never be a shortage of Mountain Dew in my home. She totally agreed to that. No, you, should. you should talk about issues. It's important, like uh, disciplining your children. If you want to have children yep. Many. Yep, how many you want to have, what you're going to do, where you going to go. I, mean, I talked to my wife. I said, you know, marrying me, I don't know what that means. I mean, I could be going to crazy places all over the world. I don't know what God has in tr- store for me. And I could be in some weird places and do some weird things. And so she agreed to all of it. So, yes, Tom. One thing I had was a little checklist. The top thing was that it had to be the same religion as I, or I figured we'd have problems. Right. So you better, you better say that you're, you know, I'll be honest with you. I hope she's not watching that. science Sunday school. But my, wa- my sister got divorced... From a guy, the first five years their marriage married, and that was the reason it 's because she was Baptist and he was something else, and he didn't even take that seriously, so she thought that it would be okay, and he would come along, and he never did, and that they split up over that. so I know from my own sister 's life that that is a huge issue about what you believe you know it 's amazing how've <laughs> i 've seen people even our church circles who, who believed all these things but didn't always practice them so well but when you get married somehow it changes That now you really think you should do them and you know and the other person doesn't then it becomes a real tension and a conflict it could be a, a very so you better know what the other person believes right that's that's crucial so, yeah Bev right And we've been here since 1990. Now. Yeah. But that was even back then even though pre- you might have been you were together on it, right? I see what you're saying. No. Can you hear me? No. Can you see this? Okay, go ahead. We like made any difference? We loved each other. We made 50 good years. Yeah. Well, now you're Baptist. 73. Well, better late than never, brother. Well, Martins, I got up front, she dragged me, Amen. Well, Christian is more important than Baptist, though, but we'll take the Baptist part with it. Yes, yes. Yeah, your wife was golden, wasn't she? She was. 92 when she passed away? 97. I remember that. 90, wow, 97. Pastor Crompton's dad just turned 97. Can you believe that? Pastor Crompton's 87. No, he's a king. Anything else? What would you say? Advice? A faithful marriage. Yes? Oh, keep your word. Yes, if you say something, do it, right? Keep your word. Be, be honest. Be faithful to what you say and do. Amen. Anyone else? Yes. Yeah, there's a lot of that, isn't there? (laughs) Stupid stuff. Laugh at the stupid stuff. Right? I would tell you this. Pray together. Maybe, you know, pray together. Share scriptures together. Those are very important things. There's a lot of things, I'm sure. Jeremiah chapter 3 we, in the Bible, we, and today we're going to talk about in the morning message physical divorce where between a, one, a husband and a wife. But I wanted to get you to think a little bit behind it because, did you know, in the Bible, there is spiritual divorce because God divorced his people Israel. And I wanted to show you that today. And maybe not a thought you're familiar with, but when we read the text, that Jesus refers to in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, you have heard it said, you shall divorce your wife and give her a certificate of divorce. That's the passage quoted out of Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. Okay? Jesus is going to tell us why Moses gave the certificate of divorce as a possibility. We're going to cover all that in the morning. But I want to show you the other passages, and there is one. I'm going to actually keep your finger in Jeremiah 3 but the one that actually mentions the phrase certificate of divorce is Isaiah. So if you hold Jeremiah 3 with one hand and Isaiah 50 in the other. Remember, Isaiah in chapters 1 through 39 tells about. All the sinful conduct and why God sent the Babylonians and why Israel went into exile and why God punished them. That was chapters 1 through 39. But chapters 40 through 66 is a look at the future someday that when God's servant comes, he's going to restore all of that. So 40 through 66 is about the future of God's people and how God's going to forgive them and change their heart and give them, make good in all the promises that he made them. So our text, Isaiah 50, falls in that second half about the restoration part, okay? So he says, verse 1 of chapter 50, Thus says the Lord, where is your mother's, here it is, certificate of divorce? Again, he's not asking for your mother, okay? He's talking about Judah and Israel, northern and southern kingdoms. Of which I sent her away, or which my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? In other words, God sold them into slavery. You know why? Because they had a debt they had to pay to Him, and the debt was their idolatry and their spiritual adultery. Right? Even James in the New Testament talks about spiritual adultery when he says in James 4 4, Adulterers and adulteresses, know you not what? That the friendship of the world? What, is it enmity with God? So you can be a spiritual adulterer because of your worldliness and because of idolatry and things going on in your heart where you've substituted God out for something else. So God says that there's a time where I divorced you, Israel, but I'm going to take you back, he says. And then he goes on, the rest of the chapter, talk about God's servant. And, and, And if you are familiar with this, this passage, you'll know that these are verses that are talking about Jesus. And he talks about not hiding his face. Verse six, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Those are all quotations about Jesus when he was spit on and how he was flogged before his crucifixion and all the things that took place to him. So the way that God draws his people back from spiritual divorce Is through the cross. It's a wonderful story. And you could even see God's view of that. If you read the whole book. And we certainly don't have time today. If you read the whole book of Hosea. You know the story of Hosea and Gomer. And how God tells him to marry this woman. Who is immoral. And then once they're married. She commits adultery on him. And God says take her back. You know why? Because he wanted that to be a picture of. What he was like. That his people are spiritual adulterers, physically as well, at that point. And he says, but I love them and I want you to take them back because that's, that's really my design. So look at Jeremiah 3 with that background in mind. He says, verse 1, if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would not that land be greatly polluted? You have played the whore with many lovers, and would you return to me, declares the Lord? Lift up your eyes, even to the bare heights, and see, where have, you been, where have you not been ravaged? By the wayside you have set, awaiting lovers like an Arab in the wilderness. You have polluted the land and your vile whoredom. Therefore, the showers shall be withheld. In other words, you have had so many other countries that you have been in love with, and all the practices that you've taken on, and all the idolatry, and the worldliness, and all the fleshliness you've done just like everybody else he says you have set you have the forehead of a prostitute or a whore it says pretty strong word and you refuse to be ashamed in the words not only were you unfaithful to me but you didn't care have you not just now called to me my father you are the friend of my youth will he be angry forever will he be indign- indignant to the end behold you have spoken but you have done all the evil that you could and the bible says in verse 6 the lord said to me in the days of king josiah have you seen what she did the faithless one the faithless one in other words unfaithful infidelity israel how she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the prostitute or the whore and and i thought after she had done all this, she'll return to me. God said, You know, you've been so bad, you think you'd finally repent and get, come back to me? He said, But it wasn't the case. She saw all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, the northern king. I sent her away with a decree of divorce. See it there? Yet her sister, Judah, did not fear. In other words, Judah's watching the northern kingdom do all of this. The Assyrians come in, wipe them out, and they don't learn their lesson. And they think they can keep on. They watch it, but it doesn't make them fear God. And they end up doing the same things. It says, because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. If they did not return to me, listen to this, verse 10. And I'll, uh, this is where I'll stop. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart. See that word, whole heart? But instead, here's the contrast, but in pretense. I looked up the word pretense, and it's used 34 times in the book of Jeremiah. Why? Because God's people are so wicked that it describes so many things that they do. And the word pretense means to trick, to lie, to deceive. In other words, you know what they would do? they would do all that they they were so, it'd be like this, it'd be like worldliness all week long, but then you come to church and you feel bad about it and you sing songs to God, put something in the offering plate, attend church, and you pretend that you're trying to do the right thing. God says, it's a lie. He says, because I know what you're like, he says. And you don't really come to me and you don't really repent of all of this, he says, but you just fake it. You just fake it. You fake that you're this, but all week long you're all this, he says. He says, that's, what, that's why I ended up divorcing you. because Not because you were unfaithful to me once or twice, but a whole lot of it over a long time, he goes, and it was a fake. You never really repented of any of it, he says. So God says, I'll divorce you over that. How did that start? And this is what I'd like you to think about today in the morning service because I'm going to stress it too. Jesus said in Matthew 19, which I'm going to say to you this morning, he said, why did Moses then, the Pharisees ask, why did God allow him to have a permit of divorce to begin with? Why did he have a certificate of divorce? And Jesus answers then this, you know why? Because of the hardness of your heart. That's why. God's heart is permanence. Man's heart is permissiveness. And the contrast is between those two. And Jesus says, I mean, God says to us in this this text, in Jeremiah 3, you know why you didn't come back to me? You know why you held on to your adulterous ways? Here's why. Because you never really gave me your whole heart. Let me show you the other two passages that speak to that issue in this same book. Jeremiah 24 God says when you finally come around when Israel and Judah finally come around here's how it's going to look when they really get right with me and they really repent and they stop the adultery he says verse 5 of Jeremiah 24 thus says the Lord the God of Israel like the good figs so I'll regard as good the exiles from Judah when I have sent them away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans he goes you know what they're going to be an Exile for 70 years. That's Daniel's time, he says. I will set my eyes on them for good. I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. Watch. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord so you know what he's saying? No more pretenses, no more deception, no more tricks, no more lies, no more fake in it. He goes, but I'm gonna change them from the inside out and they shall be my people and I will be their God. That's covenant language. God's gonna restore the covenant. In other words, I'm gonna marry them again. Ready? For they shall return to me with their whole heart. Their whole heart. That's what God's looking for. He's looking for Christians who will be faithful to him with their whole heart. Everything is God's, every aspect of it. Last one, turn over to Jeremiah 29. It's not translated whole in the English, but it's the same word in the Hebrew. And I wanted to mention it to you because it's a very, very famous passage. A lot of Christian cards have these verses on them. A lot of, I've seen a lot of pictures on people's walls with them. People love these verses Again, God's talking to the exiles and and that even though they've they've been divorced and exiled, they still have a future if they'll return to God the way he wants them to. And look what he says. Verse 10 of Jeremiah 29. Thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, remember I told you that's the exile, I will visit you. And visit means doesn't mean I'm going to come over for tea. Visit means I'm going to come and deliver you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Ready? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Then, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. Which means, by the way, if you're not wholeheartedly after God, he doesn't hear you. You will seek me and find me, here's our phrase, when you seek me with all your heart, same word, with a, when you seek me with a whole heart. In other words, I haven't said, God, you have this part of me, but not this part. And God, I've, you, know, you have these areas of my life, but these ones I've reserved for myself. But God says, what I really want from you, and the day that you'll return to me, is when you've decided that God can have your whole heart. And God says, then, watch, I'll be found by you. And I'll restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you. Declares, and I will bring you back to the place from which I have sent you to exile. God said, I'll restore you. I'll bring you back. I'll make good on all the promises of the land of Israel. And all the things I told you I'd do, I will do that, he says. Your job is to humble yourself, repent, and come and give your whole heart to me. And when you give your whole heart to me and stop withholding some things back, God says, then I'll be able to work in our lives. And that's where I would tell you today if you want to have a strong marriage, I would tell people here's my advice constantly examine your heart and ask if it's all God's. God, is all my heart yours? Is my finances yours? is my calendar yours is my time yours and my priorities yours are my morals and my values and what i watch on tv and the movies i and the listen and the things i the music and what i let my kids you know what i would say that's it god i don't want to have anything that isn't under your control i want a whole heart god that's what i want to offer you and see i believe that's one of the best things that we can do to worship god and to be faithful to him and to each other Let's pray and we'll be done. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for the text that even though, God, Israel was unfaithful to you and divorce happened, that you took them back because who is like unto you a God who pardons the iniquity of his people and passes by their transgressions, who loves to display mercy, May we be that people too. Father, I pray that today people might find in you, even in their own divorces, may they find your grace and your mercy and your kindness here with you and your church, your people. We pray in Christ's name, amen.